Chapter Five, Part Four, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Depot Journey, Part Four. The next day we relayed the sledges up the slope, which was about seven hundred feet high, rising from a small bay. It was so steep that the pony could only be led up, and we had to put on crampons to grip the ice. These are merely a sole of leather with light metal plates for foot and heel, containing spikes. These were altered afterwards. They have leather beckets, and a lanyard drove off for making them fast over the finesco. It took us all the morning to get everything up to the top, and then it started to blow. The camp was wonderfully sheltered. Jimmy Pig and Nobby were reunited after many weeks, and to show their friendliness the former bit the latter in the back of the neck as a first introduction. Atkinson had gone to Hut Point to reassure Uncle Bill as to our safety, and arrived again with Gran just as we got the last load up. There was no sugar at the hut, except what the dogs had brought in, so Gran, who was quite fresh, volunteered to get a couple of bags from the depot at safety camp, which could plainly be seen out on the barrier. We all went to the edge of the slope to see him go down it on ski. He did it splendidly, and must have been going with the speed of an express train down the incline, as he was on the barrier in an incredibly short time compared to the hours we had dragged up the same slope with the loads. Teddy, Titus, and Keon were left at the camp, to be joined by Gran later. Scott started off for Hut Point with Crean and Cherry on his sledge, while I followed with Ford and Atkinson. The others helped us up several hundred feet of slope, and left us under Castle Rock. It was here that they mistook their way in the blizzard and lost a man from the discovery, though it was fine below it was blowing like anything on the heights. I was too busily occupied to see much of the hills and snow slopes, which I got to know so well later. It was about three miles direct to the hut, but very up and down hill. At the last, however, you can see the bay in panorama, with Cape Armitage on one side, and Hut Point on the other, where the discovery lay two whole years. It is a magnificent view from the heights, and for wild, desolate grandeur would take some beating. The western mountains, and the great dome of Mount Discovery, across the black strait of water, covered with dark frost smoke, and here and there an iceberg, driving fast towards the sea. About half a mile below us was the little hut, and on the left the eight hundred feet pyramid of Observation Hill. It is a perfect chaos of hills and extinct craters just here. It was blowing like fun. We left one sledge on the top of Ski Slope, and just took what was necessary on the other, such as our bags, etc. It was my first experience of steep downhill sledging. Instead of anybody pulling forward, we all had to hang back and guide the sledge down the slippery incline without letting it take charge or getting upset. It is great fun. On reaching the head of the bay, however, we had quite a dangerous little bit to cross. Here it was swept of snow, and there was nothing but glassy ice, and the incline ended in a low ice cliff with the water below it. Attached as we were to the sledge, we should have been at a disadvantage had it come to swimming, which a slip might easily have brought about. We scratched carefully across this, and then headed down on the snow, arriving at the hut all well. The old hut had changed tremendously since I last saw it, having been dug out and cleared of snow and ice. Two unrecognisable sweeps greeted us heartily. They were Bill and Mears. The dogs howled, a chorus for our benefit, it was quite like coming home. Inside the hut, the cause of the blackness was apparent. They had a blubber fire going. 
an open one, with no chimney or uptake for the smoke. After such a long open-air life it fairly choked me, and for once I could not eat a square meal. We all slept in a row against the west wall of the hut, with our feet in board. The next morning Captain Scott, Bill, Cherry and I set out to walk to Castle Rock and meet the other party. It was fairly fizzing from the sea, but clear. Once upon the heights, however, we seemed to get less wind. A couple of hours later we were at the great rock, Castle Rock, which is one of the best landmarks about here. The party in the saddle camp had relayed two of the sledges up the slope. These we hauled on to the top, while the two ponies were harnessed and brought up. There were three sledges left to take on altogether, so the ponies took one each and we the other. Meanwhile Captain Scott walked over the shoulder under the castle rock to see down the strait, and came back with the intelligence that he could hardly believe his eyes, but half the glacier tongue had broken off and disappeared. This great tongue of ice had stood there on arrival of the discovery ten years before, and has remained ever since. It had a depot of Shackleton on it, and Campbell had depoted his fodder on it for us. On the eventful night of the break-up of the ice, at least three miles of the tongue, which had been considered practically terra firma, had gone, after having been there probably for centuries. We headed for the hut. Bill had looked out a route for the ponies to avoid slippery places. It started to blitz, but it was not too thick for us to see our bearings. At the top of Ski Slope the ponies were taken out of the sledges and led down a circuitous route over the rocks. The rest of us put everything we wanted on one sledge, and leaving the others up there, went down the slope as before. The two ponies arrived before us, and were stabled in the veranda. That night, for the first time since the establishment of safety camp, the depot party were all together again, minus six ponies. In concluding my report to Captain Scott on the flow incident, which he asked me to set down long afterwards, I said, In reconsidering the foregoing, I have come to the conclusion that I underestimated the danger signs on the sea ice on February 28th, and on the following day might have attached more importance to the safety of my companions. As it was, however, all circumstances seemed to conspire together to make the situation unavoidable. I did not forget to mention the splendid behaviour of Cherry and Crean, and for my own part I have no regrets. I took the blame for my lack of experience, but knew that having done everything I could do, it did not concern me if anybody liked to criticise my action. My own opinion is that it just had to be. The circumstances leading to it were too devious for mere coincidence. Six hours earlier we could have walked to the hut on sound sea ice. A few hours later we should have seen open water on arrival at the barrier edge. The blizzard that knocked out the beasts, the death of Weary, the misunderstanding of the dogs, everything, fitted into places on the sea ice during the only two hours of the whole year that we could possibly have been in such a position. Let those who believe in coincidence carry on believing. Nobody will ever convince me that there was not something more. Perhaps in the light of next year we shall see what was meant by such an apparent blow to our hopes. Certainly we shall start for the Pole with less of that foolish spirit of blatant boast and ridiculous blind self-assurance that characterised some of us on leaving Cardiff. Poor Captain Scott has now a new anxiety thrust upon him. The winter station with ponies, stores and motors was all situated on a low beach not twenty yards from the water's edge, and now that the ice has gone out and the hut was not six feet above sea level at the floor, how had they fared in the storm? 
this was a problem we could not solve without going to sea. Cape Evans, though dimly in sight, was as far off as New Zealand till the sea froze over. The idea of attempting the shoulder of Erebus did occur to Captain Scott, but it was so heavily crevassed as to make a journey from our side almost impossible. On the other side, Professor David's party got up to the summit without finding a crevasse. Captain Scott took his reverses like a brick. I often went out for a walk with him, and sometimes he discussed his plans for the next season. He took his losses very philosophically, and never blamed any of us. This is the end of that part of Bow's letter which deals with the incident. Crean told me afterwards how he got on to the barrier. He first made for the gap, following the best path of the ice, but then had to retrace his steps and make for White Island, jumping from floe to floe. But then I was pretty lively, said he, and there were lots of penguins and seals and killers knocking around that day. Crean had one of the ski-sticks, and that was a great help to me for getting over the floes. It was a sloping piece, like what you were on, and it was very near touching the barrier, in one corner of it only. Well, I dug a hole with the ski-stick, in the side of the barrier, for a step for one foot, and when I finished the hole, I straggled my legs, and got one on the flow and one in the side of the barrier. Then I got the stick, and dug it in on top, and I gave myself a bit of a spring, and got my outside leg up top. It was a terrible place, but I thought it was the only chance. I made straight for safety camp, and they must have spotted me, for I think it was Gran that met me on skis. Then Scott and Wilson and Oates met me a long way out. I explained how it happened. He was worried-looking a bit, but he never said anything out of the way. He told Oates to go inside, and light the primus, and give me a meal. A more detailed account of the behaviour of the hundreds of whales which infested the lanes of open water between the broken floes and carved bergs is of interest. Most of them, at any rate, were killer whales, orca gladiator and they were cruising about in great numbers, snorting and blowing, while occasionally they would in some extraordinary way raise themselves and look about over the ice, resting the forepart of their enormous yellow and black bodies on the edge of the floes. They were undisguisedly interested in us and the ponies, and we felt that if we once got into the water our ends would be swift and bloody. But I have a very distinct recollection that the whales were not all killers, and that some, at any rate, were bottle-nosed whales. This was impressed upon me by one of the most dramatic moments of that night and day. We made our way very slowly, sometimes waiting twenty minutes for the flow on which we were to touch the next one in the direction we were trying to go, but before us in the distance was a region of sea ice which appeared to slope gradually up onto the fast barrier beyond. As we got nearer we saw a dark line appear at intervals between the two. This we considered was a crevasse at the edge of the barrier which was opening and shutting with the very big swell which was running and on which all the flows were bobbing up and down. We told one another that we could rush the ponies over this as it closed. We approached the barrier, and began to rise up on the sloping flows which had edged the barrier, and so on to small bergs which had carved from the barrier itself. Leaving Crean with the ponies, Bowers and I went forward to prospect, and rose on to a berg from which we hoped to reach the barrier. I can never forget the scene that met us. Between us and the barrier was a lane of some fifty yards wide, a seething cauldron. Bergs were carving off as we watched, and capsizing, and hitting other bergs, splitting into two and falling apart. The killers filled the whole place. Looking downwards, into a hole between our berg and the next, a hole not bigger than a small room, we saw at least six whales. They were so crowded that they could only lie so as to get their snouts out of the water, and my memory is that their snouts were bottle-nosed. 
At this moment our berg split into two parts, and we hastily retreated to the lower and safer flows. Now, in the zoological report of the Discovery Expedition, Wilson states that the true identity of the bottle-nosed whale, Hyperudon rostrata, in Antarctic seas, has not been conclusively established, but that inasmuch as it certainly frequents seas so far as 48 degrees south latitude, it is probable that certain whales, which he and other members of that expedition saw frequenting the edge of the ice, were, as they appeared to be, bottle-nosed whales. For my part, without great knowledge of whales, I am convinced that these whales which lay but twenty feet below us were whales of this species. After our rescue by Scott, we pitched our tents, as has been described, at least half a mile from the fast edge of the barrier. All night long, or as it really was early morning, the killers were snorting and blowing under the barrier, and sometimes, it seemed, under our tents. Time and again some member of the party went out of the tent to see if the barrier had not broken farther back, but there was no visible change, and it must have been that the apparently solid ice on which we were was split up by crevasses by the big swell which had been running, and that round us, hidden by snow bridges, were leads of water in which whales were cruising in search of seal. The next day most of the ice had gone out to sea, and I do not think the whales were so numerous. The most noticeable thing about them that day was the organisation shown by the band of whales, which appeared after Bower's pony, Uncle Bill, had fallen between two floes, and we were trying to get him towards the barrier. "'Good God, look at the whales,' said someone, and there, in a pool of water behind the floe on which we were working, lay twelve great whales in perfect line, facing the floe. And, out in front of them, like the captain of a company of soldiers, was another. As we turned, they dived as one whale, led by the big fellow in front, and we certainly expected that they would attack the floe on which we stood. Whether they never did so, or whether they tried and failed, for the floes were fifteen or sixteen feet thick, I do not know. We never saw them again. One other incident of those days is worth recalling. "'Jerry! Green! We're floating out to sea!' was the startled awakening from Bowers, standing in his socks outside the tent at 4.30 a.m. that Wednesday morning. And, indeed, at first sight on getting outside the tent it looked a quite hopeless situation. I thought it was madness to try and save the ponies and gear, when, it seemed, the only chance at all of saving the men was an immediate rush for the barrier. And I said so. "'Well, I'm going to try.' was Bower's answer, and, quixotic or no, he largely succeeded. I never knew a man who treated difficulties with such scorn. There must be some of my companions who look back upon Hut Point with a peculiar fondness, such as men get for places where they have experienced great joys and great trials, and Hut Point has an atmosphere of its own. I do not know what it is. Partly aesthetic, for the sea and great mountains and the glorious colour effects which prevail in spring and autumn would fascinate the least imaginative partly mysterious, with the great barrier knocking at your door, and the smoke of Erebus by day and the curtain of Aurora by night, partly the associations of the place, the old hut, the old landmarks, so familiar to those who know the history of the Discovery Expedition, the stakes in the snow, the holes for which ice was dug to water the ship, Vince's cross on the point. Now there is another cross on Observation Hill. And yet, when we first arrived, the hut was comfortless enough. Wilson and Mears and Gran had been there some days. They had found some old bricks and a grid, and there was an open blubber fire in the middle of the floor. There was no outlet for the smoke and smuts, and it was impossible to see your neighbour, to speak without coughing, or to open your eyes long before they began to smart. Atkinson and Crean had cleared up the floor of ice in our absence, but the space between the lower and upper roofs was solid with blue ice, 
and the lower roof sagged down in places in a dangerous way. The wind howled continuously, and to say that the hut was cold is a very mild expression of the reality. This hut was built by the Discovery Expedition, who themselves lived in the ship, which lay off the shore frozen into the sea-ice, as a workroom and as a refuge in case of shipwreck. It was useful to them in some ways, but was too large to heat with the amount of coal available, and was rather a white elephant. Scott wrote of it that, On the whole, our large hut has been, and will be, of use to us, but its uses are never likely to be of such importance as to render it indispensable, nor cause it to be said that circumstances have justified the outlay made on it, or the expenditure of space and trouble in bringing it to its final home. It is here now, however, and here it will stand for many a long year, with such supplies as will afford the necessaries of life to any less fortunate party, who may follow in our footsteps, and be forced to search for food and shelter. Well, it was to be more useful to Scott in 1910-1913 than he imagined in 1902. We found the place, with its veranda, complete, the remains of the two magnetic huts and a rubbish heap. It was wonderful what that rubbish heap yielded up. Bricks to build a blubber stove, a sheet of iron to put over the top of it, a length of stove piping to form a chimney. Somehow somebody made cement, and built the bricks together, and one of the magnetic huts gave up its asbestos sheeting to insulate the chimney from the woodwork of the roofs. An old door made a cook's table, old cases turned upside down made seats. The provisions left by the discovery were biscuits contained in some forty large packing cases. These were piled up across the middle of our house as a bulkhead, and the old discovery winter awning was dug out of the snow outside and fixed against the wall, thus made to keep the warmth in. At night we cleared the floor space and spread our bags. The two precious survivors of the eight ponies with which we started on our journey were housed in the veranda, which was made windproof and snowproof. The more truculent dogs lay tethered outside, the more docile were allowed their freedom, but even so the dog fights were not infrequent. We had one poor little dog, Makaka by name. When unloading the ship this dog had been overrun by the sledge which he was helping to pull. He suffered again when the team of dogs fell down the crevasse, and was now partially paralysed. He was a wretched object, for the hair refused to grow on his hind quarters, but he was a real sportsman, and had no idea of giving in. Mears and I went out one night when it was blowing hard, attracted by the cries of a dog. It was Makaka, who had ventured to climb a steep slope, and was now afraid to return. When the dogs finally returned to Cape Evans, Makaka was allowed to run by the side of the team. But when Cape Evans was reached, he was gone. Search failed to find him, and after some weeks, hope of him was abandoned. But a month afterwards Gran and Debenham went over to Hut Point, and here at the entrance of the hut they found Makaka, pitifully weak, but able to bark to them. He must have lived on seal, but how he did so in that condition is a mystery. The reader may ask how it was that being so near our winter quarters at Cape Evans, we were unable to reach them immediately. Cape Evans is fifteen miles across the sea from Hut Point, and though both huts are on the same island, Hut Point being at the end of a peninsula, and Cape Evans on the remains of a flow of lava which juts out into the sea, the land which joins the two has never yet been crossed by a sledge party, owing to the great ice-falls which cover the slopes of Erebus. A glance at the map will show that although Hut Point is surrounded with sea, or sea-ice, on every side, except that of arrival heights, the barrier abuts upon the Hut Point peninsula to the south beyond Pram Point. Thus there is always communication with the barrier by a devious route, 
by which indeed we had just arrived, but farther progress north is cut off until the cold temperature of the autumn and winter causes the open sea to freeze. We arrived at Hut Point on March the 5th, and Scott expected to be able to cross on the newly frozen ice by about March 21st. However, it was nearly a month after that when the first party could pass to Cape Evans, and then only the bays were frozen, and the sound was still open water, owing to the winds which swept the ice out to sea almost as soon as it was formed. On the top of all the anxieties which had oppressed him lately, Scott had a great fear that a swell so phenomenal as to break up Glacier Tongue, a landmark which had probably been there for centuries, might have swept away our hut at Cape Evans. He was so alarmed about it that he told Wilson and myself to prepare to form a sledging party with him to penetrate the Erebus icefalls and reach Cape Evans. "'Went yesterday to Castle Rock with Wilson to see what chance there might be of getting to Cape Evans. The day was bright and it was quite warm, walking in the sun. There is no doubt the route to Cape Evans lies over the worst corner of Erebus. From this distance, some seven or eight miles at least, the whole mountain side looks a mass of crevasses, but a route might be found at a level of three thousand or four thousand feet. After some days the project was abandoned as being hopeless. On March the 8th Bowers led a party to bring in the gear and provisions which had been left at disaster camp, the material, that is, which had been rescued from the sea ice. They were away three days and found the pulling very hard. At the corner of the bay the barrier was buckled into round ridges which took a couple of hours to cross. We marched for some time alongside an enormous crevasse which lay like a street near us. I examined it at one point which must have been fifteen feet wide, and though it was impossible to see the bottom for snow cornices, it was undoubtedly open as I could hear a seal blowing below. Bower's letter describes them dragging their heavy load up the slope to Castle Rock. It took us all the morning to reach Saddle Camp with the loads in two journeys. I found a steady plod up a steep hill without spells is better and less exhausting than a rush and a number of rests. This theory I put into practice with great success. I don't know whether everybody saw eye to eye with me over the idea of getting to the top without a spell. After the second sledge was up, Atkinson said, I don't mind you as a rule, but there are times when I positively hate you. Defoe could have written another Robinson Crusoe with Hut Point instead of San Juan Fernandez. Our sledging supplies were mostly exhausted, and we depended upon the seals we could kill for food, fuel and light. We were smutty as sweeps from the blubber we burned, and a more blackguard-looking crew would have been hard to find. We spent our fine days killing, cutting up and carrying in seal when we could find them, or climbing the various interesting hills and craters which abound here, and our evenings in long discussions which seldom settled anything. Some looked after dogs, and others after ponies. Some made geological collections, others sketched the wonderful sunsets. But before and above all we ate and slept. We must have spent a good twelve hours asleep in our bags every day, after our six weeks sledging, and we rested. Perhaps this is not everybody's notion of a very good time, but it was good enough for us. The Weddell seal, which frequents the seas which fringe the Antarctic continent, was a standby for most of our wants, for he can at a pinch provide not only meat to eat, fuel for your fire, and oil for your lamp, but also leather for your finesco, and an antidote to scurvy. As he lies out on the sea-ice, a great ungainly shape, nothing short of an actual prod will persuade him to take much notice of an Antarctic explorer. Even then he is as likely as not to yawn in your face and go to sleep again. His instincts are all to avoid the water when alarmed, for he knows his enemies the killer whales live there. 
but if you drive him into the water he is transformed in the twinkling of an eye into a thing of beauty and grace which can travel and turn with extreme celerity and which can successfully chase the fish on which he feeds we were lucky now in that a small bay of sea ice about an acre in extent still remained within two miles of us at a corner where barrier sea and land meet called pram point by scott in the discovery days now pram point during the summer months is one of the most populous seal nurseries in mcmurdo sound in this neighbourhood the barrier moving slowly towards the peninsula buckles the sea ice into pressure ridges as the trough of each ridge is forced downwards so in summer pools of sea water are formed in which the seal makes their holes and among these ridges they lie and bask in the sun the males fight their battles the females bring forth their young the children play and chase their tails just like kittens now that the sea ice had broken up many seal were to be found in this sheltered corner under the green and blue ice cliffs of crater hill if you go seal killing you want a big stick a bayonet a flensing knife and a steel any big stick will do so long as it will hit the seal a heavy blow on the nose this stuns him and afterwards mercifully he feels no more the bayonet knife which should be fitted into a handle with a crosspiece to prevent the slipping of the hand down onto the blade should be at least fourteen inches long without the handle this is used to reach the seal's heart our flensing knives were one foot long including the handle the blades were seven inches long by one and a quarter inches broad some were pointed and others round and i do not know which was best the handle should be of wood as being warmer to hold killing and cutting up seals is a gruesome but very necessary business and the provision of suitable implements is humane as well as economic in the time and labour the skin is first cut off with the blubber attached the meat is then cut from the skeleton the entrails cleaned out the liver carefully excised the whole is then left to freeze in pieces on the snow which are afterwards collected as rock-like lumps the carcass can be cut up with an axe when needed and fed to the dogs nothing except entrails was wasted lighting was literally a burning question i do not know that any lamp was better than a tin matchbox fed with blubber with strands of lamp wick standing up in it but all kinds of patterns big and small were made by proud inventors they generally gave some light though not a brilliant one there were more ambitious attempts than blubber the worst of these perhaps was produced by oats somebody found some carbide and oats immediately schemed to light the hut with the settling i think he was the only person who did not view the preparation with ill-concealed nervousness however wilson took the situation into his tactful hands for several days oates and wilson were deep in the acetylene plant scheme and then apparently without reason it was found that it could not be done it was a successful piece of strategy which no woman could have bettered bowers wilson atkinson and i were on crater hill one morning when we espied a sledge party approaching from the direction of castle rock as we expected this was the geological party consisting of griffith taylor wright debenham and seaman evans home from the western mountains they entirely failed to recognise in our black faces the men whom they had last seen from the ship at glacier tongue i hope their story will be told by debenham for days their doings were the topic of conversation both numerically and intellectually they were an addition to our party which now numbered sixteen taylor especially is seldom at a loss for conversation and his remarks are generally original if sometimes crude most of us were glad to listen when the discussions in which he was a leading figure raged around the blubber stove scott and wilson were always in the thick of it and the others chimed in as their interest knowledge and experience led 
rash statements on questions of fact were always dangerous, for our small community contained so many specialists that errors were soon exposed. At the same time, there were few parts of the world that one or other of us had not visited at least once. Later, when we came to our own limited quarters, books of reference were constantly in demand to settle disputes. Such books as the Times Atlas, a good encyclopaedia, and even a Latin dictionary are invaluable to such expeditions for this purpose. To them I would add who's who. From odd corners we unearthed some contemporary views, the girl's own paper, and the family herald all of ten years ago. We also found encased in ice an incomplete copy of Stanley Wayman's My Lady Rotha. It was carefully thawed out and read by everybody, and the excitement was increased by the fact that the end of the book was missing. "'Who's going to cook?' was one of the last queries each night, and two men would volunteer. "'It's not great fun lighting an ordinary coal-fire on a cold winter's morning, but lighting the blubber-fire at Hut Point when the metal frosted your fingers and the frozen blubber had to be induced to drip was a far more arduous task. The water was converted from its icy state. By that time the stove was getting hot, in inverse proportion to your temper.' Seal liver fry and cocoa, with unlimited discovery cabin biscuits, were the standard dish for breakfast, and when it was ready a sustained cry of hoosh brought the sleepers from their bags, wiping reindeer hairs from their eyes. I think I was responsible for the greatest breakfast failure when I fried some biscuits and the sardines. We only had one tin. Leaving the biscuits in the frying pan, the lid of a cooker, after taking it from the fire, they went on cooking and became as charcoal. This meal was known as the Burned Offering. On April the 1st, Bowers prepared to make a fool of two of us by putting chaff in our pannikins and covering the top only with seal meat. The plan turned back upon the maker, for he had not enough left to make up the deficiency, and, as I found out many weeks afterwards, surreptitiously gave up his own hoosh to the April Fools and went without himself. Of such are the small incidents which afforded real amusement, and even live in the memory as outstanding features of our existence. Breakfast done, there was a general clean-up. One sees the apology for a broom, which existed, day footgear, finesco, hair socks, ordinary socks and puttees, took the place of fleecy sleeping socks and fur-lined sleeping boots. Lunch cooks began to make their preparations, ice was fetched for water, a frozen chunk of red seal-meat or liver was levered and chopped with an ice-axe from the general store of seal-meat, fids of seal-skin with the blubber attached, a good three inches of it perhaps were brought in and placed by the stove, much as we bring in a scuttle of coal. Gradually the community scattered as our duties or inclinations led, leaving some members to dig away the snowdrifts which had accumulated round the door and windows during the night. By lunch-time every one had some new item of interest. Wright had found a new form of ice-crystal. Scott had tested the ice off the point and found it five inches thick. Wilson had found new seal-holes off Cape Armitage, and we had hopes of finding our food and fuel nearer home. Atkinson had killed an emperor penguin, which weighed over ninety pounds, a record, and the assistant zoologist felt he would have to skin it, and did not want to do so. Mears had found an excellent place to roll stones down arrival heights into the sea. Debenham had a new theory to account for the great boulder, as a mammoth block different in structure from the surrounding geological features was called. Bowers had a scheme for returning from the pole by the plateau instead of the barrier. Oates might be heard saying that he thought he could do with another chupati. A favourite pastime was the making of knots. Could you make a clove hitch with one hand? 
The afternoon was like the morning, save that the sun was now sinking behind the western mountains. These autumn effects were amongst the most beautiful sights of the world, and it was now that Wilson made the sketches for many of the water-colours, which he afterwards painted at winter quarters. The majority were taken from the summit of Observation Hill, crouching under the lee of the rocks, into which, nearly two years after, we built the cross which now stands to commemorate his death and that of his companions. He sketched quickly with bare fingers and mittened hands, jotting down the outlines of hills and clouds, and pencilling in the colours by name. After a minute, more or less, the fingers became too cold for such work, and they must be put back into the wool and fur mitts, until they are again warm enough to continue. Pencil and sketch-book, a Windsor and Newton, were carried in a little blubber-stained wallet on his belt. Scott carried his sledge-diaries in similar books, in similar wallet, made of green Wilsdon canvas and fastened with a lanyard. There was a good fog in the hut by dinner-time. This was a mixed blessing. It was good for our gear. Sleeping-bags, finesco, mitts, socks were all hung up and dried, most necessary after sledging, and most important for the preservation of the skins, but it also started the most infernal drip-drip from the roof. I have spoken of the double roof of the old discovery hut. This was still full of solid ice. Indeed, some time afterwards a large portion of it fell, but luckily the inhabitants were outside. The immediate problem was to prevent the leaks falling on ourselves, our food, or our clothing and bags, and so every tin was brought in to use, and hung from leaky spots, while water shoots came into their own. As the stove cooled, so did the drip cease, and in no prehistoric cavern did more stalactites and stalagmites grow apace. End of chapter 5, part 4